He just leads Thanksgiving to God. Uh, when Karen and I were dating, we had made a decision because, um, you know, Christian couples make weird decisions. And our decision was that we weren't going to use the word I love you, the words I love you, until we knew we wanted to marry one another. And so I remember <coughs> sitting on the bench on the front cap- campus of Wheaton College and for the very first time telling Karen that I loved her. It's as if those months of uh, rising interest and then dating in her were welling up in one moment in my heart. And my heart was so full, I just couldn't stop saying it. I kept throughout the night saying, I love you, Karen. I love you, Karen. Because it was what was, my heart was full of that love, and that's what overflowed. So that's a little bit of what Paul's like right here. He's so overflowing with thanksgiving that you just prick him, and that's what comes out whenever he prays. But why is he full of thanksgiving? Look at verse 4. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about and the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. I want you to see that progression because that's important to understand how this all comes. So Epaphras comes and he brings this word of truth, this gospel. And they receive the gospel. And from that, they have this hope that's stored up for them in heaven. And springing from that hope are faith and love. So Paul is thankful to God, because they have received the gospel, and it's produced in them hope that also bears the fruit of faith and love. So at the the core, what Paul is grateful for is this genuine reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about, uh, when we talk about someone receiving Jesus Christ, and sometimes we praise God or thank God for that, In my experience, a lot of times that thanksgiving is oriented around things like, God, I thank you for this many decisions for Christ. Or we think about evidence that someone has received Christ because they filled out a commitment card. Or at least in the Bible Belt of America, that they walked an aisle, said a sinner's prayer. We're at a revival or 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 a conference and flooded the stage. It's at the farmer's market last Saturday. We go there for several reasons. One of them is because there are enough vendors that put free stuff out for our kids, right? So um, there's some fruit in these little trays that, you know, our kids take one of. um, And they're picking at the fruit. um, And I noticed the lady next to me is standing in front of the big carton of melons. And she says to the the man on hand, um, and she says to him, how do you buy a ripe melon? She says, every time I buy a melon at the store, I take it and I eat it, and it's just, it's not a good melon. And so he proceeded to describe to her two things in rather uh, complex detail that I can't repeat now, or that I wouldn't be able to replicate now. But um, one of them is the color of the melon. It has to be a certain color. 
But the other thing, and this I found interesting, was the stem. You look at the stem because by looking at the stem, you can tell the way in which it fell off the vine. And I guess you can ascertain whether it was uh, ready to be harvested when it had been taken off the vine. Now, what's interesting about that is this lady had been looking for a ripe melon for some time, and she was finding over and over again that whatever she was looking for, she was looking for the wrong things because she kept getting melons that weren't ripe. So she went to the source, and she asked somebody for instructions about how to recognize a ripe melon. Now, why do I tell you all of that? Because I think sometimes when we think of whether somebody has received the gospel, when we think of whether we have received the gospel, and when we rejoice at someone's reception of the gospel, we're like that woman who didn't know what she was looking for, the right sign. So in looking for, you know, I prayed a prayer, I filled out a commitment card, I walked an aisle, or whatever else it might be. I felt a sense of remorse. I felt a sense of spiritual elation. I was very sincere in a moment. Interestingly, those aren't the things that Paul praises. These aren't the things that he says grow from genuinely receiving the gospel. A lot of times we get confused then when these masses have made their commitment and then a year later only a few of them are walking with God. When our children who filled out their commitment card and wrote something in the Bible walk away from their faith. And we go, I don't understand. Well, maybe we're getting an unripe melon because we're looking for the wrong things. And the marks of genuine conversion, genuine reception of the gospel are laid out right here. Faith, love, and hope, which Paul will use over and over again in his writings as the three things that best typify a genuinely changed heart. So let's look briefly at what faith, love, and hope are so we can understand them biblically. Faith. A lot of times today we think of faith as... uh, just kind of mental assent. I, I think it's true. I believe in Jesus. Yeah, he existed and he died and he rose. Or maybe faith is nothing more than kind of that syrupy sentimentality you find at the end of Christmas movies like Miracle on 34th Street or It's a Wonderful Life or Elf. Do you notice how they ruined the movie Elf with the last 10 minutes? Oh, well. But faith is actually something quite different, biblically. Faith biblically is that deep-seated, of-the-will orientation that causes you, or that drives your actions. It's a belief system that's deep within you that drives your actions. There's a great missionary named John G. Patton. If you don't know about him, go study him. He is a wonderful man, and he was a missionary to the Outer Hebrides. And he was trying to translate the New Testament for them. And he was struggling with just the right words to translate this so important concept of faith or belief. And then he came upon a word in their language that meant to lean one's full weight upon. And he chose that word as the word for faith. Let's, let's think of it this way. Let's say there was a chair right here. And uh, one person stands here before you with this chair next to him and says, 
I believe that that chair will hold me if I sit upon it. What he's just expressed is one view of faith, kind of this mental ascent. It's something that's true. I, I kind of, everyone's excited. Oh, he believes. That's great. The next person comes and he sits in the chair. That's biblical faith. It's not just saying, I believe the chair can hold me. It's actually sitting in the chair. Faith. This first marquee list of someone who's genuinely been changed by the gospel. The next is love. Now, in our backwards culture, love has been reduced, I think, to self-love. So what we call love is usually just self-love. So who are the people that I love? Well, it might be somebody I feel attracted to for whatever reason. So when I'm with them, I feel really good inside. And because it makes me feel really good inside of me, I must love them. Or we have a common interest, all right? So we both love gaming or we both love, you know, whatever it is, right? And because we have that common interest, I really enjoy my times with them. Because they're just playing into the very things I love. So I say, that's a friend I really love, which all we mean is, it feels good for me to spend time with them. But do you notice what Paul says? In verse 4, and I've heard of the love you have for all. The saints. When God changes our hearts, instead of this self-love, we become people who give ourselves sacrificially to others for their good. And there's a bond that's formed between other believers that this world can't explain. Biblical love. The kind of love we see in this church between someone like Dave Van Kooten and George Comfort or Terry Laidlaw and Stephen Briggs. The kind of love you can't explain outside of God's work in a man's heart. And that's the kind of love that is being called for here. It's the kind of love that would cause Paul, who had never met the Colossians before, to describe them in verse one or verse two as holy and faithful brothers true eternal family, even though I've never met you. Or it would cause him, when he's writing this letter, even though this, this letter is his own words, and we can see that throughout, for him to say that his heart is so knit together with his, his adopted son, Timothy, his adopted in the faith son, Timothy, that he can say this letter actually is not just from him, but from Timothy, our brother. That's the kind of love that God produces in us when we're genuinely transformed. And then lastly, hope. Again, we think of hope today as kind of a pie in the sky, wing in a prayer, you know, optimis optimism. You know, so a wife might say, I hope my husband learns to pick up his dirty laundry. Or the husband might say, I hope the Leafs win the Stanley Cup. But that's not the kind of hope being talked about here. 
Look what it says about this hope. This hope that is stored up for you in heaven. That's an ancient way of saying it's in the bank. It's not going anywhere. It is secure. It is solid. It is stable. There's no doubt you have it. As sure as Jesus Christ rose up from the dead and ascended into heaven, so sure is our confidence that we await an inheritance when Christ returns and ushers in his good kingdom. Certain hope. This is the, these are the marks of genuine reception of Christ. Genuine belief in the gospel. So let's get back moving through the passage. Remember kind of the, the flow of the passage. God says, or Paul says, I rejoice that you received this word of truth, the gospel, because it produced, that produced in you this hope, and there's faith and love that spring from that. Now then he goes on and look at verses uh, 6 through 8. Actually, I should say one other thing before, before I do that that I think is really intriguing. Notice that how these, the faith, the love, and the hope are related to one another. He says the faith and love actually spring from our hope. Now, oftentimes, we think of it just the opposite, right? We think faith is what gives us hope. So the more faith you have, the more full your hope can become. But that's not how he says it. He says it in a way that turns our thinking on its head. Faith and love spring from hope. One of my good friends uh, stood up with me in my wedding. His name's John. And he realized uh, shortly out of college that he really wanted to go and be a missionary to Burma. God put it on his heart. And once he resolved in his mind and his heart that he was going to Burma, he began to learn everything he could about the Burmese and the Burmese culture. So he'd sit down with Burmese immigrants and talk with them and interact with them. He would eat Burmese food. And he would, he would study, he'd begin studying the language and learning what he could of the language because he knew that's where he wanted to go. I think sometimes we today... We look out at a broken world where there's strife and discord, pain between us and ones we love. Or we see sickness ravaging maybe ourselves or someone we love. And our hearts break. We see the injustice in this world. Things that should not be that are going on and it seems unpunished. We hear of wars where dads are dying and leaving their children fatherless. Sometimes senseless wars. And we realize this is a broken world we live in. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we see that brokenness even in our own heart. May we identify a little more than we'd care to admit with Lady Macbeth, who not so subtly in her symbolism says, Out! Out! Damn spot! Because we know what is in our hearts. And to this dark world, a message comes 
A message comes that said, this world is not all there is. There is a kingdom coming where justice will reign. Where the marks of that kingdom will be love and peace and kindness and harmony. In that world, because of what Christ has done on the cross, the damning spot in our own soul can be washed clean. And our hearts are filled with hope. And we say, I long for that kingdom. Let your kingdom come. When our hearts are filled with that kind of hope and we say, that's where I want to go. That's where I'm headed. We begin, like my friend John, living today for the kingdom that awaits. And those things that typify that kingdom begin to mark our lives today. So that my hope causes me to be a man of faith and love because those are marks of the eternal kingdom that I await. Do you see how hope can give birth or rise to faith and love? Well, let's keep going. Um, Moving back to the passage, verses 6 through 8, talk about how that this gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole then known world. It's as if Paul's trying to underscore, hey, he's saying, look, at the end of the day, the thing that's bearing fruit is the gospel itself. Gospel, you hear that word? Um, It was a word really invented for the Bible. It was trying to translate a Greek word or transliterate a Greek word. It just means good news. Some truths that are good. That's what the word gospel means. And so Paul is saying, look, it's these truths that are good, the good news about Jesus Christ, this word of truth, That is bearing fruit and growing all around the world and in you. Underline, underline, underline. It's not anything but these truths. See, Christianity is a fact-driven religion. It's a, I'll make up a word, it's a truthy religion. That's why my stomach curdles when I see evangelicals emotionally manipulating people and cajoling people into coming into the kingdom of God using every mechanism they can and leveraging everything they can to try and convince somebody to become a Christian. I think some American evangelicals are the best snake oil salesmen since Ali Hackham. You see, what has power is this message that there was a man, Jesus, who fulfilled Everything that was said about a coming Messiah that was laid out hundreds and thousands of years before in the Old Testament. And that this man died a death that all who witnessed it because of signs that happened that everyone can attest to, like darkness in the air, people rising from the dead and walking around the city, this man died a death that was unusual. And as those Old Testament scriptures would say, was in our place. That this man, Jesus, rose 
from the dead. A fact attested to hundreds of people who were eyewitnesses at the time of the writing of the New Testament. When these New Testament writers were writing, they were still alive and you could go ask them whether they'd seen it. So you could call the guy's bluff. The facts of Jesus as the Messiah who died and rose. This is the essence of Christianity. This is the truth that can transform hearts. And so, Paul says in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I know I need to get on to my second point, and I will in just a moment. It's going to take less time on my second point, so I want to just say one other thing from verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says of, of this gospel and its bearing, and gro- bearing fruit and growing, it says, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. In other words, this gospel has been working among them from the day they heard it all the way until when he was writing. Now, what he's saying is that our view of the gospel can't be punctiliar. One point. That is to say, you can't say uh, there's a point in time where I believe the gospel and embrace the gospel. And that my experience with this gospel is related to this one point. So my entrance, the door into the kingdom is the gospel, and then I shut it. And now I have a long list of rules that as a Christian, because I walk through that door of the gospel, I need to start following those rules. That's a wrong view of the gospel. The gospel isn't punctiliar. It's progressive throughout a whole life. So what it means to be a Christian is somebody who takes that gospel and grows in our grasp of it, and ingrains it more and more into our very, the very fiber of our being, so that the values of the gospel and the cares of the gospel become our values and our cares, so that we're transformed from the inside by the gospel. This is a right view of the gospel and the way it transforms. If we have this punctiliar view, we actually then start falling into man-made religion. Okay, I get out of hell by believing in Jesus, and then I start following the list of rules that are in the Bible. And i got to work hard at following that list of rules. No. If you find in your heart that you're trying to follow a list of rules that you don't desire in your own heart, there's something wrong. The gospel is going to transform that heart so that the things laid out in Scripture, you read them and say, that's good. That's what I want. That's who I want to be because the gospel is transforming it. That's the difference between this man-made religion and gospel religion, true religion. All right. So Epaphras brings the gospel. It bears fruit and it produces hope, which produces faith and love. That's the evidence of genuine transformation. And Paul looks at that and his heart overflows with thanksgiving. When you see somebody who has placed their hope in God's word, who's being transformed by his gospel, does it cause you to rejoice such that your prayers are driven to praising God and thanking him for the power of his gospel that is bearing fruit? All right, I should get on to my second point. Paul prays to God that they would continue in Christ. Now, the six verses here in verses 9 through 14 
um, are, are somewhat complex. It can be a little difficult to follow the flow of thought here. So I've asked Sean to uh, throw on the, on the board. It's going to be kind of small because I've laid it out. Um, but Sean, can you put that slide up for me? There it is. Um, this is kind of laying out these six verses in a way that kind of uh, traces the, the flow of what's going on. Because really, it's, it's a quite simple six verses. Paul is only praying for one thing. He says, I ask God and pray, and then there's that top line, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the only thing he's praying. One thing. The result of that, if they're filled with that knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, then they will walk in a manner worthy and fully pleasing to God, worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to him, which he then explains with four different phrases. This is what it means to walk in a manner pleasing to him, to bear fruit in every good work, to grow in the knowledge of God, to be strengthened with all power so that, uh, from God's power so that you can have endurance and patience and joy, and then giving thanks to the Father who's done these three things so, so that we should be giving thanks. He's qualified us, delivered us, and transferred us. But he's really just praying for one thing. And he's saying, if you have this, all, this, all the rest will, will come. So I think of, um, back in Lindell, there was this chiropractor who I think was a little bit, in my mind, a little bit of a voodoo chiropractor, if you know what I'm talking about. She believed that every problem you had at its core came back to your back. And if you could just get your back healthy, everything else about you would be healthy. So, uh, honestly, there was somebody who had intense migraines, and the solution, of course, was get your back aligned and your migraines will go away. There was somebody who was dealing with anxiety, severe anxiety. Well, what we need to do is get your back aligned and your anxiety will go away. There was someone who had allergies, and she was convinced, no joke, that if you could get your spine aligned, your allergies would be taken care of. One solution for all these different things. Now, Paul's no voodoo doctor. But the, the same concept's going on here. All these different things of Christian maturity and how to grow in Christ, at the end of the day, are a byproduct of us having this one thing. The knowledge of his will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So we'd best come to a good understanding of what this means, this phrase means, the knowledge of his will with all spiritual uh, wisdom and understanding. Now in order to do that, I need you to get your mental white out for a second. Because if you've grown up in or around evangelical Christianity, when you hear God's will, your mind puts, has these two categories. You have God's word that tells you things like don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery. And then you have God's will. And the second category is for things like, who should I marry? Where should I go to college? What kind of job should I take? And as you make these two categories for yourself, God's will or, or God's word, or, you know, there's things that God's word speaks to. And the things that God's word doesn't speak to are the things where you need to know God's will. And so you come to understand that, and there's all sorts of books written about that. You can lay out a fleece, or you can, uh, you know, feel some sense from God that you're supposed to do something or, or um, you're supposed to look at the conflation of circumstances and see how they kind of fit together. There's all sorts of ways of determining God's will. But when you look to the Bible, it says things like this in 1 Thessalonians. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Or 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. Or in Ephesians, that you would understand in Christ all the mystery of God's will. In Christ. By understanding Christ. Over and over again, when you look to the scriptures to see what God's will is, it's understanding the truths of the Bible that are already there and how to live in light of those truths in the complex and ever-changing situation of the world around us. So when you hear God's will, you need to think, knowing the truths and the principles from God's word that inform the way I should live. I saw this... uh, There's a pastor in California named John MacArthur who called, he said this, believing submissive Bible study leads to the knowledge of God's will. I thought that got it about right. But then there's this interesting thing. As you read along in chapter 2, you come to verses 2 and 3, where all of a sudden we see these same words, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, linked together one more time. So look at chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding, there's that word, in order that they may have the mystery of God, may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul says, the way to have this knowledge, wisdom, and understanding is actually to to know Christ. So which is it? You're supposed to know the word, know what he says in his word, so that we can have this knowledge, or are we supposed to know Christ? And the answer, obviously, is both, right? For Paul, you can't understand the scriptures without understanding Christ. And you can't understand Christ without understanding the scriptures. They're inseparable, as inseparable as the two strands of your DNA. And so when he's talking about knowing Christ, he's talking about, or knowing the will of God, he's talking about so being saturated in the scriptures and in the Christ of scriptures that you know how he would have you walk in any given situation. A deep, intimate knowledge. Now, Let me ask you, do you really think that the cure for your spiritual lethargy is knowing the Christ of Scripture? Do you really think a Christ-centric, a Christocentric reading of the Bible is the protein you need to grow strong and mature in your faith to take the next step or take the next step? So let me just give you a a small taste of what I'm talking about. Let's say you're um, dealing in your heart with impatience with people. Basically, you you get frustrated with other people's incompetence. That's me. Um, So you're dealing with this issue, right? And then... You think about how patient Jesus is with me, a sinner. 
and me and all my incompetence. And that changes my heart. And it changes how I live. Or maybe, like me, you're frustrated that you don't pray as much as you want. Or maybe you're at a really dry point where you're not praying much at all. Keep trying to, okay, I've got to read a book on prayer. I've got to get accountability on prayer. I've got to do this. Do or maybe you need to see the story of Jesus is laid out in Scripture that says, I am small and weak and helpless. And that's why Jesus had to come and rescue me. I depend on God for everything. And that sense of dependence on God that the right understanding of the gospel brings will drive me and you to our knees. Or maybe you bear grudge against a brother for whatever reason. Another Christian, you bear this grudge. Understanding that one of the reasons the Bible talks about Jesus coming is to unite all things under his name. That the very purpose of God is to take Jew and Gentile, slave and free, man and woman, and unite them together. And you say this grudge that I'm bearing that's driving a wedge is actually going against the very purposes of God and the gospel. Can you taste it? The key to reaching heights of spiritual knowledge and wisdom is nothing out of the ordinary or new. The key is to grow into our understanding of what Paul will later call the word of Christ. That gospel, that word of truth that brought us life in the first place. So that's 1, 1 through 14. Paul thanks God that they've genuinely received Christ. And then he prays that they would continue in Christ. When you pray for others, is that how you pray? When you pray for your own heart, is that how you pray? Is that what's in your heart? Is that what you value most? Perhaps the best way to start changing your heart is to start praying in the ways that Paul did. So let's pray together now. God, I pray that we would be people who see the marks of genuine conversion, genuine reception of the gospel, and rejoice. And I think of many people in this room that I know who I can see those marks in. And we collectively can think of those people and we rejoice at the work you've done in them and the power of your gospel. And we pray that we would be people who are filled with the full knowledge of your will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let's pray in Christ's name. Amen. We have before us a table that reminds us of our unity in Christ, reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to sing uh, just uh, 
couple times about turning our eyes on Jesus. And as we do that, those who are going to help serve communion, I'd ask you to come forward, and then we'll continue on. Join with me. I want to encourage you as we take communion together to consider your own heart. If you're somebody who has experienced this transformation from the gospel and is allowing the gospel to continue to transform you, this is a meal to take and rejoice in along with all the others in the room who are saying, I'm identified by this gospel and this Christ. If you're somebody right now who has not embraced that gospel or you're actively resisting its effects in your life, This is not a wise meal to take. Because God says there's power in this meal. Symbolic power, but power nonetheless as we take it. And that we can actually bring condemnation upon ourselves if we take it in an unworthy manner. In our church, we take it together as a sign that we're all unified. So you will have both the bread and the cup passed to you. And we will wait together to take those things together. So uh, that's how we'll go, go forward. Let me pray for us. And then we'll distribute these elements and rejoice together. God, this is a good meal. We celebrate the goodness of the gospel and the hope of the kingdom to come. As we unite together around these truths, as we show by our taking of the bread and the cup that our union is with Christ and that his gospel is what is shaping us. We pray that we'd be able to do it with full joy today. In Christ's name.
Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he beautiful? Out of shining sun and stars, it's turn my eyes upon you now. Look full in your wonderful face. And the things of earth, they go strangely dim in the light of your wrote in the, <clears throat> he says, for what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. the same way, after cup, supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death he comes. Let's pray. God, thank you for the death and resurrection of Christ. Thank you that he comes again with a good kingdom. We praise your name. Amen. I want to encourage you to stand together. I'm going to speak Paul's benediction from Colossians over you. Paul says, remember my chains, grace, 
be with you all. You may go in peace.